0: Welcome to church this morning. If we've not met, my name's Graham. We've been uh, working our way through John's Gospel in the Sunday morning gatherings. We're taking a little bit of a break from that this morning. I just wanted to share some stuff that's on my heart, which I hope will be a blessing for you. Uh, so Patrick's going to put a slide up on the screen just to introduce um, what I'm about to talk to you about. Does anyone recognize this image? Anyone seen that before? Shout it out if you've, if you've seen it, if you recognize it. Nobody's seen it. Well, this, believe it or not, is the official Edinburgh coat of arms. So, this is the, the emblem, the coat of arms of the very city in which we live. And you may be able to read at the top there, there's an inscription in Latin uh, that says, Nisi Dominus Frustra. Any Latin speakers in the room? Give me a wave if you speak Latin. Okay. Um, what do you think it means? Does anyone know? Nisi Dominus Frustra. Shout it out. Sounds about right. So, nisi means unless or without. Dominus means the Lord or master. And frustra means in vain or useless. So, it, it translates roughly, without the Lord, everything is in vain. Isn't that significant that that's the emblem of our city? and um, That has been the, the coat of arms and the motto for Edinburgh since 1647. That's about 400 years of us living under, as it were, this, this motto. It's, it's a great motto, and I want to suggest to you that it is a great way to build your life. My message this morning is under that title, How to Build Your Life, and uh, this motto comes direct from a, a passage of Scripture which we're about to read, but I'm going to pray first uh, just before we read the Word. Lord, I thank You that You're an alive God. I thank You that You are abundant and good And I thank you that you're right here. Lord, you're right here. And we just invite you by your Spirit to minister to us and touch us. So many different people, so many different needs represented in this room. But I pray miraculously uh, you would touch every heart. Every heart. Every person would be moved and blessed and changed by what they hear this morning. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to read from the Bible in Psalms chapter 127. This is what it says. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for He grants sleep to those whom He loves. I wonder if you've ever given any attention to how you're building your life. Have you ever wondered how to build a life that's really worth living? I wonder in the craziness of life and amongst all of your plans and ideas and hopes and dreams, have you ever thought about the foundation that you're building your life on? We live in a world where everybody is trying to be somebody, to make it, to accomplish something, to succeed, to be a good husband, or a good father, or a good wife, or a good girlfriend, or a good business person, or a good student, or a good friend. And I think quite often we're so anxious as it were to get the walls up and the roof on and choose the wallpaper of life, and yet we rarely give much time and attention to what's holding the rest of it up. And so I want to talk to you this morning, initially, we have three points that I want to share with you, but I want to talk initially about something I've called the illusion of the self-made life, the illusion of the self-made life. I don't know if any of you have kids, um, but if you have, you'll probably remember back to the early stages of their life when very early on they kind of demonstrated the kind of insatiable desire that, humans being to have, that human beings have to be independent. So very early on from a very young age, children want to be independent. And basically from the time they talk or learn to talk, one of the first things you'll hear them say is, I'll do it. You ever heard of, have you ever heard a kid do that? I'll do it. Or normally, I do it. Me do it. And so they want to brush them tees, their teeth by themselves. They want to tie their shoelace by themselves. Uh, they want to get changed by themselves. They want to pour their milk by themselves. And even when you're confident that they can't yet do it on their own, they're determined to prove you wrong. And uh, the truth is that we rarely grow out of thinking like that. Uh, we spend our lives building stuff, building business, building education, building our reputation, building our re- retirement plan. We spend our lives guarding stuff, our possessions, our kids, our bank balance, our health, and yet ultimately these verses tell us, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Let's read that together actually, that's after three, one, two, three, unless the Lord, let's, let's wait for the verse, <laughs> unless, after three, one, two, three, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch. In vain. I wonder, oh, let's go again. (laughs) In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those whom he loves. I wonder how much we're involving God in what we're building. I wonder how much we're involving God in our everyday lives. Now, the truth is, God has given you gifts, he's given you wisdom. He's given you education. He's given you experiences. Um, But the truth is he never intended human beings to toil through life and live life on their own. He intended life to be a partnership in which we trust in him and rely on him. And the truth is some of us are running ragged, trying to make life happen, trying to build things and acquire stuff and spin more plates than we're physically able to spin and the craziest thing about it all is that we think we can do it all on our own. I don't know about you, but I'm honestly here to tell you this morning that I can't do it. I can't do that. I can't do life on my own. I need God. I need God. And I suspect, if you're honest enough to admit it, you do too. If you're a human being this morning, you need God If you're not a human being here this morning, my apologies, this message isn't relevant for you, but I suspect most of you here are. And so if you're trying to build a family, you need God. If you're trying to build a business, you need God. If you're trying to build a career, you need God. If you're trying to build a small group, you need God. If you're trying to build a team, guess what? You need God. If we're trying to successfully start locations around this city and this nation, we need God. And if we're trying to heal the sick this evening, we need God. We need God. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. And some people say, well, your God's just a crutch then. And our response to that is always, yeah, what's yours what's yours? Everybody's depending on something. Everybody's relying on something in life, and so what's yours? And another response I would say to that when somebody says, well, your religion, your God is just a crutch, is, well, a crutch is something that you rely on only when you're in trouble. And I want to suggest to you that you don't just need God when you're in trouble. You need God every moment of every day of your entire existence. I'm saying we need Him all of the time. And some people again will object and say, well, Graham, that's just weak. It's weak to need others. It's weak to need some sort of higher power to depend on. Well, let's eavesdrop on a conversation that the Apostle Paul had with Jesus. He describes how Jesus talks to him. He says, but he said to me, Jesus speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's read that last phrase together. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we trust God, our weaknesses are are magnificently transformed into limitless, limitless strength. Paul said he delights in weakness. In other words, he delights in not in knowing that he can't do it by himself. He delights in knowing that without Jesus, he cannot get through. He delights in the knowledge that unless the Lord built the house, he labored in vain. And you know, I think it's time for many of us to admit Defeat. that's not something you normally hear in this charismatic go get him hallelujah, church. Um, But for some of us, it's time that we admit to ourselves that we cannot do life on our own. And even some of us Christians who are supposed to be walking with God are trying to do life far too much on our own. We can't do family. We can't do relationships. We can't do marriage. We can't do business. We can't do church. We can't do life on our own. It's time to admit defeat. And I promise you that that admission, if you do it, will be the most liberating, peace-giving, life-sustaining, burden-lifting admission you're ever likely to make. So it's time for some of us to resign from running our own lives, for, resign from, as it says in the psalm, rising early and staying up late, toiling for food to eat. And I think it's time for some of us to just say, God, I'm done with that. I'm done with all of that, chasing my tail, running around like a nutcase, trying to fix everything, trying to sort everything, trying to be the CEO of the planet, fix everything. And I'm going to resign today. Some of you need to hand in your resignation for running your life and running the rest of the world because that, deep friends, is God's job. And there's a a better way. One of my colleagues, um, I'll refer to him anonymously because I don't really have his permission to share this. But um, he came to a point a few months ago where, you know, he, like most of us on staff, have a lot of balls to juggle. And he was struggling, and the weight of the thing was threatening to crush him, essentially. And he came to a point where he just thought, "I I can't actually do this on my own. And he made a deliberate point of carving out sort of a half an hour or an hour on every given work week, part of his work week, to actually just pray, to pray over his areas, to pray over his um, responsibilities. And the result was that, you know, the stresses and the strains didn't necessarily change, the workload didn't change, not everything magically fixed itself, but he was a different person. There was a new lease of life about him. There was a new peace about him. There was a new perspective in him. And it really made a significant difference to his life. There's some famous verses, some of the most famous verses, probably in the Bible. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. This is what it says. It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. I think these verses present a really great balance for us to heed, so watch out. It says this initially in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In other words, the Proverbs saying, don't think you can build it all yourself. Don't think you can fix it all yourself. Don't think you can run it all yourself. And the second part says, in all of your ways, acknowledge Him. I think what he's saying there is these ways are just all of the activities in your life, all of your planning, all of your budgeting, all of your hard work, all of your effort. And he's saying in all of these things, acknowledge God. Don't try and do it all yourself. Don't rely on the effort. Don't rely on the budgeting. Don't rely on your experience. Don't rely on the planning. Acknowledge Him in everything. He's saying in all of your grafting, involve Him. In all of your planning, consult Him. In all of your budgeting, be led by Him. And hopefully you see the balance between uh, us relying on God and actually working hard ourselves. You see, God hasn't intended us to be lazy or passive or idle. He wants us to do stuff with our life and make plans and be strategic and think smart and all of those things. But He's saying in these verses that none of that is ultimate. We don't rely on those things. Ultimately, what we rely on ultimately is God. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, you may have heard of him. You may not like him, uh, but he was a 17th century military leader, and he said something quite profound. He said, trust in God and keep your powder dry. He's talking about gunpowder. He's saying, trust in God and keep your powder dry. In other words, Our trust is ultimately in God Himself. That is where we ultimately put our trust, but that does not excuse ourselves from being prepared, from being strategic, from being ready, um, and from getting ourselves into a good place. So, building your life is good. Guarding your life is good. Watching your life is good. But the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand, watch in vain. And friends, one of the most scary pitfalls and one of those most common pitfalls for believers that I've seen over the years, sometimes even in my own life, is that we start the journey trusting in God and relying on God and drawing on God, and then at some point we get smart enough or experienced enough or gifted enough or skillful enough, and we start doing things all by ourselves. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone willing to admit that sometimes happens in life? And I just want to show you from Scripture how easy this is to let this happen. And so we're going to dive into the Old Testament for a little while. for about the next 10 minutes or so. And we're going to look at a man called Asa. And my second point to you this morning is don't be an Asa. Yeah, you got to be careful what you say. How you say that? Turn to your neighbor and, and say, "Don't be an ASA. Don't be an ASA." I don't know if you've read books like. If somebody just punched you in the face, you said it wrong. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've read books like Second uh, Second Kings or Second Chronicles. Um, if you have, you probably noticed that it's just one long cascade of. Um, Descriptions of the reigns of various kings—kings kings of Judah and kings of Israel—and one of the most striking things as you read through those books is that you find that some men, some men, some kings followed God religiously; they followed God completely with their whole hearts. And some of them just were completely the opposite—they turned away from God, they rejected God, they were rebellious through and through, and they did everything wrong. And it's kind of like this roller coaster ride: some guys did well, some guys did badly. But the saddest stories are not the stories of the guys who rejected God all the way through their life. The saddest stories are the stories of the, the guys, the kings who started well but ended badly. And there are sadly are a few of those, Solomon is one of the most famous, but there's another king, we've called him Asa. And we read about him in 2 Chronicles chapters 14 to 16. And as I, as I was reading these chapters this week, um, I read chapter 14, I thought Asa's the man. I read chapter 15 and I thought Asa's the man. Then I read chapter six, and I thought, you plunker, Asa, what did you go and, What do you have to go and do that for? So that's the journey that we're gonna go on over the next few minutes. This is how chapter 14 starts. Second Chronicles 14. It says, So Abijah, that's the previous king, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, these are all idolatrous things, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Give me a yay. That's pathetic, but well done. Anyway, pretty good start. This is the start of Asa's reign. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe an epic battle. It's kind of like a Lord of the Rings type battle. Epic battle between the army of Judah. Asa led the army of Judah. He was the king of Judah. And between him and the Ethiopian army. And it tells us in chapter 14 that Asa had 300,000 men from the tribe of Judah and 280,000 men from the tribe of Benjamin. Help me out here. How many men is that? Just to prove that you were listening to what I said. Lots. That's a cheat, Natalie. 300,000 men from the tribe of Jehovah, 280,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. What's what's the total? 580,000 men. And this is what it says in verse 9. It said, Now Zerah, he's he's the opposition. Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of what? a million men, a million men and 300 chariots, and they came to Marisha. I don't even know what an army of a million men looks like. Can you imagine that? That's a thousand thousand. That's incredible. Uh, Okay, so Asa here, he's got an army of 580,000 men. doesn't mention chariots. Um, Zerah comes up against him. The Ethiopian chief comes up against him with one million men and 300 Chariots. And so Asa's outnumbered basically two to one. And here's how he responds. Verse 10. It says, So Asa went out to meet him. They drew up in battle formation in the land in the valley of Zephathah and Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and your name. Have, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O oh Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Give me a yay. You've got to be better at this. You see what I'm prompting you? Just, just pretend. Even if you're not excited, pretend, all right? So this is just an incredible story, an incredible show of trust and dependence on God, on the part of Asa. I want you to notice in particular verse 11, it says, Lord, there is no one besides you to help. Asa realized that he had to completely depend on God. God was his only option. He knew that relying on the strength of his army or anything else was not going to see him through, that unless the Lord watched the city, the guards stood watch in vain. And so that's chapter 14, a kind of epic chapter of victory and reliance on God, doing everything right. Chapter 15 goes on to talk about Asa reforming Judah, making lots of positive changes, how he destroys more idols, how under his leadership we see the whole nation of Judah uh, seeking God with their whole hearts. And then in chapter 16, as I hinted at earlier, it all goes belly up. It all goes belly up. It says in chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, In the thirty-sixth year of Asa's reign, Basha, that's another king, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone going out or coming into Asa, king of Judah. And there, this is what it says. It says, Then Asa brought out silver and gold, say silver and gold, silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to ben yet another king, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus saying, let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. What's going on here is that Basha, king of Israel, is essentially coming up in battle against Asa, the king of Judah. Asa realizes that he is in trouble, and so he goes to another king, and he says, Hey, uh, what's his name? Ben-Hadad. He says, Hey, Ben, um, I'm going to give you silver and gold, and what I want you to do is I want you to change your allegiance and come and ally yourself with me rather than Basha. And the king does it. And so right at the end of his reign or towards the end of his reign, we see that Asa has switched in his approach to dealing with trouble. And very possibly this army that's come up against him this time around is a smaller army than the one that we talked about earlier. And and what, what does he do? Does he pray to God like he did before? Does he seek God like he did before? Does he trust God like he did before? No, he pays off a guy to change his loyalties and become his ally. It's a tragic story, and this is how the story ends. Second Chronicles 16, verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, that's like a prophet, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because you've relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. We're not the Ethiopians and the and an immense army, with many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Listen to this, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You might want to write that verse down. That's a very powerful verse. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Did you know that God longs to back those whose heart is completely His? Did you know that God wants to strongly support those who don't rely on silver or gold or wisdom or experience, but completely rely on Him? You know, sometimes, as I said earlier, as we get older, we lose our edge. We lose our edge. We we get wiser, or so we think. And so we don't have to trust God. Maybe we get wealthier and we don't have to trust God. Maybe we think we've got more life experience. And so we just push through on our own. And the tragedy of this story is that in his dying days, um, Asa he contracts a disease in his feet. It says it's a severe disease. And it says Yet, even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So, Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. What a tragedy to start so strong walking with God, relying on God, trusting in God, and to end your life trusting in your wealth and in your private health care. What a tragic story. And, folks, Let's not make the same mistake. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? Don't be an Asa. I want to end our time together just by talking about what I've called hallmarks of a God-reliant life. Hallmarks of a God-reliant life. If I'm to really live a life of, of trust and a life of dependence and a life of reliance on God, what is that actually going to look like? Uh, well, there are many things that we could say about that, but I've just got four things that I want to kind of close with, four ways your life is going to be shaped, four things that you're likely to do um, if you're trusting in God. And the first one, you'll know it, you'll see it coming, it's, it's prayer, prayer you knew that was coming, didn't you? You knew that would be number one. Peter, uh, our pastor, tweeted something the other day which I thought was pretty profound, quoting a guy called B.J. Thompson. He said, the most obvious sign of pride isn't boasting, it's a lack of prayer. The most obvious sign of pride isn't boasting, it's a lack of prayer. Isn't that significant? You know, working first demonstrates that we rely on our own self-effort. Praying first demonstrates that we rely on God. And a quick analysis of our own prayer lives will quickly reveal whether or not we're relying on ourselves or on the God without whom we build our lives in vain. And so I want to encourage you, and Peter's regularly encouraging all of us in this, is be people who pray. Because when we pray, what we're saying to God is, God, I need you. If you don't pray, what you're saying to God is, God, it's cool. I've got this covered. See, this whole life thing, I'm, I'm in control. It's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know when it gets a bit tough, God. You know, I'll come knocking on your door when I need your support. And so let's make prayer a habit, a regular part of our life, even when things are okay. Even when things are good. You remember what I said about a crutch? A crutch is something that you need when you're in trouble. That's not the way we we ought to be interacting with God. We need God all of the time. So whether things are good, whether things are bad, let's be people who who pray. The second hallmark of a God-reliant life is what I've called listening. Listening. I I could have wrapped this up in the last point. Um, about prayer, um, but because a lot of us tend to think about prayer as a unidirectional thing, a one way thing where we talk to God and that's it. Um, I, w- I wanted to talk about this separately because I want you to remind you that prayer and relationship with God is, is two way. Prayer and relationship with God ought to have been just as much listening as talking. And Jesus said this, famously Matthew 4, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, you tell me the rest, but by every, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live, you cannot exist, you cannot thrive, you cannot succeed merely on human resources. You need more than that. You need to hear from God, and it's not just a matter of reading the Bible. You need to search the Word of God for His now Word for you, for, His, for the Word that is specific for your life, for that day, for that situation, for that moment. God has got a Word from you, for you, and you cannot rely on bread from 10 years ago when you first became a Christian. You can't rely on those words that you heard God speak to you 15 years ago. It has to be a daily experience. And so we need to be listening to God. That demonstrates we rely on Him. Here's another hallmark of a God-reliant life. Rest in God. Rest in God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus is out in a boat with His disciples and the storm blows up? Um, there are kind of a couple of similar stories so don 't get get them confused but do you remember what, do you remember where Jesus was when the storm he 's in the boat on this occasion it 's not the one where he walks on water he 's in the boat where 's Jesus when the storm 's going crazy and everything 's going bad he 's asleep he 's asleep crazy man i mean i uh, I used to sail every summer from Northern Ireland where I grew up to Scotland to the west coast of Scotland in our little Sailing boat that my family had, and it was typically between a seven and a ten hour sail across the irish sea and sometimes the weather was literally it was horrendous sometimes the waves would just be crashing over the boat, literally drenching you every every couple of minutes There would be a wave that literally engulfed the entire boat i got to tell you, I prayed some serious prayers on that boat. Uh, I lost track of the number of times I got saved on that boat. I gave my life to Jesus again and again and again, Um, just kept praying out in desperation. Um, But that was the kind of picture of this storm that these disciples were experiencing. You know, the spray was incredible, the waves would have been um, pretty intense, and yet Jesus is asleep. He's asleep on the boat, and what that tells me is that He was at perfect peace and in perfect rest. I wonder if you noticed what the psalm said earlier. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain, you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Listen to this. For he grants sleep to those he loves. For he grants sleep to those he loves. How many many of you have lost sleep over worrying sometimes? How many of you have? Man, you guys are so unresponsive. You're all liars. Half of you are lying. You know when a preacher asks you to respond, I think he means it. But anyway, um, so many of us have, have lost sleep worrying, worrying about our bills, worrying about our health, worrying about our exams, worrying about people that we know they're struggling or sick. And if that's you, one of the best things you can do before you go to bed is just give it all to God. I know that's elementary. I know that's straightforward. But you get a better night's sleep if you left it with God. His shoulders are big enough to carry the stuff that you can't carry by yourself. There's a famous verse in, I think it's 1 Peter 5, verse 7. It says, cast all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. Cast it all on Him. You can't cope with it. He can He's big enough to deal with it, so give it all to Him. And you're saying to Him, just as you go to sleep in the night, God, I trust all of this into your hands. This stuff that I can't um, explain, I can't get my head around, this stuff I can't get through, I'm giving it into your hands. And the last thing I want to share just before we close is the last hallmark of a God-reliant life is a thing called worship. You heard of that? Worship. One of the ways I know whether I'm trusting God is whether or not I'm able to worship. Let me say that again. One of the ways I know if I'm trusting God is whether or not I am able to worship. See, worship is one of the greatest human expressions of our reliance on God. When you worship, what you're saying is, God, I trust you. I trust you. Whether or not I understand what's going on, whether or not I like what's going on, whether or not I, I have chosen, I would have chosen these circumstances that I'm going through, I know that you're God and I am not and I choose to trust your plan for my life. And when we worship, in spite of our pain and in spite of our brokenness and in spite of our confusion, sometimes what we're saying is, Lord, I trust in you. I trust in you so we're going to close in worship. If I can invite the band to come and join me up here. Uh, we're going to close just by putting that last point into practice by choosing to worship. Um, so close your eyes with me. Uh, we're going to respond initially just by trying to take to heart some of the things that I've been sharing. You know, some of you may able to identify with what I said about Asa, I was encouraging you not to be an Asa, and uh, the reality is some of us have been. Some of us have been those who started well. We started our lives, our Christian lives, strongly walking with God, trusting God, relying on Him. And yet, over time, sometimes, you know, maybe we got busy. Maybe we got uh, full of ourselves. Maybe we just thought, you know, it's, I think I can handle this now. And we sort of took it back on ourselves. We took life back on our shoulders. Instead of casting it all on Him, we decided to carry it by ourselves. And just like I encouraged you earlier, some of you need to admit defeat right now and say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need you. So take a moment, if that's you, um, just do that. Just admit defeat. Just say, God, I need you. I need you, God. Some of you are kind of breezing through life. Um, Just doing it all on your own. And it's not like life is particularly difficult. It's just that you've got into the habit of muddling through and making it happen by yourself. And maybe you need to just tell God, God, I'm sorry for kind of neglecting, involving you in my life. I want to trust in you again. I want to trust in you again. don't want to trust in my gold or silver or my experience. I want to trust in you. Take a moment just to respond in that way. It's possible there's another group of people. may even just be one, but there's maybe a handful of people here who you haven't yet trusted your life at all to Jesus Christ. You know, I can't encourage you enough. I honestly, I honestly couldn't live my life without God. I honestly couldn't do it. And if you're doing that at the moment, I don't know how you can do it. And so I want to invite you into a relationship which will sustain your life more than you can ever imagine. I'm not saying it'll be easy. In some ways, it'll be more difficult. But at least you will have someone walking beside you every step of the way. And it's the God who made you and designed you for relationship with himself. So if you're saying, God, I need you in my life, I want you in my life, then all I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer and I'd like you to follow along with me just under your breath between you and God. And it'll be a prayer where you turn away from your old life when you put your trust in him and make a decision to live for him. So you pray this, just under your breath if that's you. Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. But I thank you that you're alive. That You're alive today, that you rose again. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. All the wrongdoing in my life. And so I turn away from that. And I trust that you've dealt with that. And I now entrust my entire life into your hands. I acknowledge that I can't live life by myself. And I need you. And I invite you in. And I thank you that you're coming. As I pray now in Jesus name just keep your eyes shut for a second is there anyone that prayed that prayer if there is just would you do me a favor and just lift your hands lift your hand and let me know that you prayed it even if there's just one I see one in the cafe there thank you anyone else anyone else God, I pray for this wonderful person who's made this this commitment this morning. Lord, I thank you. It's such a relief to know that there's a God out there who carries us and who sustains us and who walks with us in life. And I pray that she would know the power of your presence. Even right now, before she leaves this building, I pray she would know the power of your presence, filling her completely Holy Spirit, we invite you to touch her life in a way that she'll never forget. Change her life, change her heart, change her future. Thank you that she's yours in Jesus' name. Amen.